Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. God said to Adam, I'm going to give you the gift of woman. She's going to be everything you could ever want from a mate. She's going to agree with everything you say, be exquisitely beautiful, cook for you, clean for you, and wait on you hands and foot. And Adam said, wow, what's a gift like this going to cost me? And God said, an arm and a leg. And Adam said, well, what can I get for a rib? I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from Fran Drescher. As if you couldn't tell. She plays a stepmother, not a nanny, in the musical Cinderella. We'll talk to her later. Plus, we'll speak with Oscar Isaac, star of the movie Ex Machina. And if that all sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired in April. So cast your mind back to a time before fireworks and cookouts, when, as at any party, we started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. A tentative deal on Iran's nuclear program has just been announced. Indiana lawmakers are going over the state's controversial Religious Freedom Act. California imposing mandatory water rationing on state residents. Now for something you might not have heard. We are speaking with our friend Rehan Harmansi. She is editor-in-chief at the new travel website Atlas Obscura. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Uh, Well, this weekend I'm going to be talking about... What kind of music calms down cats? Oh, oh. that's a conversation topic no one will want to discuss, <laughs> yeah. right? Cats are a very unpopular <laughs> item. No, especially online. Yeah. So what what have we learned? So there is a academic journal called the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery that recently completed a study on what cats find most relaxing um, while they're in surgery. How did they find this out? They played the music while they were under the knife? Yes. What they did is they put what I imagine are very small headphones on the cats um, and then randomly shuffled two-minute-long segments of a variety of different kinds of music, including Natalie Ambrugio's Torn, (laughs) ACDC's Thunderstruck, (laughs) and Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings, Opus 11. Did anyone think that possibly ACDC was going to calm cats down for surgery? Like, that's what you put on if a cat was a relief pitcher. It's like called... the closer in a kitty baseball game. Not, not... Uh, Brendan, it's called science. Oh. So what do they find most calming, as if it's hard to guess between... Well, shockingly, um, they found the classical music most calming. Although I have to say, whenever I play music when a cat's around, no matter what I play, they just kind of ignore it. Does this have any practical application in daily life? I'm not sure about that, Rico, although... The goal of this study is basically to reduce the amount of anesthetic they're using during surgery. Um, So they're thinking that if they can figure out how to calm cats down in surgery, then maybe they won't have to dose them as much. Wow. I love the story already, but now it's my favorite study ever. Well, Rehan Harmansi, thanks for the small talk. Thank you, guys. And now, time for some calming cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our rarely imitated history lesson with booze. First, the history. This week back in 1827, an Englishman began selling a new invention that changed his countrymen's lives. No, it wasn't lager. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Humans first made fire hundreds of thousands of years ago, but we didn't figure out matches till 1827. Oh, there'd been something similar. At the turn of the 19th century, you could buy bits of wood coated with chemicals, which you dipped in sulfuric acid. 
A few seconds later, the chemicals reacted and made a burst of flame. But the so-called Promethean matches weren't super practical. If the chemicals accidentally combined in your pocket, your clothes might burst into flames. Luckily, a British chemist named John Walker came up with an alternative after mixing some chemicals to make a percussion cap for a gun. The mixture dried on his stirring stick, which he tried to scrape clean by dragging it across a piece of wood. To his surprise, it caught fire. Walker had invented the first friction matches. They still weren't exactly danger-free. Walker's matches sometimes shot sparks several feet across a room, but they were definitely an improvement, and Walker sold them at his pharmacy for three years. He named them Congreves, after the British Army's Congrev rocket. Walker wasn't much of a businessman, though. He never patented his invention. So a guy named Samuel Jones swiped the idea. He named his product Lucifer's. And they became so famous, some countries still call matches Lucifer's today. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Alan McPhail. He is the acting manager at the Vane Arms, a bar in Stockton-on-Tees, the birthplace of John Walker. Alan, thanks for joining us. Hello and welcome from the Vane Arms in Thorpeville, Stockton-on-Tees. And Stockton-on-Tees, so that's Tees is the river nearby your, your community? Yes, that's right. Yeah, we're, we're in a kind of industrial area and the Tees just runs out to the North Sea and we're, we're just on either side of the river there. So you heard the history, what drink did it inspire you to make? We came up with the name Strike. The Strike. Yeah, we, we wanted the cocktail to actually look like a match as well. So um, so we got Bailey's Irish Cream, then okay. we added uh, Kahlua, and then we thought, uh, because it is a match and it is fiery, we wanted to give it a little bit of heat, so we added some brandy as well. Oh, so wow. that makes up the main stick, if you like, of okay. the match. And this is in a tall glass, like a Tom Collins glass? It is actually quite strong, so I'm sort of recommending that maybe you have it in a smaller shot <laughs> all right. size glass. So um, uh, we do have a saying around the bar now, because all the locals have been trying it, and we all say three strikes and you're out. <laughs> 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 That's the way it's going at the moment. Wait, so. So, so you've been experimenting with some of your locals and that you've been incinerating their minds with your drink? Uh, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Mind you don't get burned. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about how you got the red, um, the red part on top. What's on top? That is grenadine added to a beaten egg white, um, which also has a little bit of caster sugar added to that as well. You probably made the drink strong just so you don't have to make a lot of these because they sound pretty complicated. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, you get them out quite quick. Okay. So it's been quite fun, actually. It's created a little bit of uh, razzmatazz in the bar. And then, so we have an amazing photo that we're going to share with our audience on our website that you put sparklers in there. Now, are these the thing you normally have at the bar? Um, they're a cake decoration, basically, and yeah. we just clip them to the side of the glass. Yeah, and they're actually a distant cousin of the match, right? I mean, Of course, yeah. <laughs> you get the connection. So, Alan, I, I think you should go out right now and copyright this cocktail. Don't let history repeat itself. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it won't. Oh, what a sweet gent. 
he was. certainly is. certainly is. But by the way, everyone, if you can't quite envision the match stickiness of that drink, <laughs> we have a photo of it at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And while you're there, sign up for our email newsletter. Among other things, you'll find a cocktail recipe in every weekly installment, and it's 100% digital, so you can't accidentally set it on fire. <laughs> So we've made small talk, had a drink, now let's eavesdrop on a well-told tale. And the teller is Mary Norris. She's become a legend in the hallowed offices of the New Yorker magazine, although she only occasionally writes for it. Her nickname, the Comma Queen. Here she is to explain her job and confess to a literary crush. Hi, I'm Mary Norris, and I've been a copy editor at the New Yorker for three decades. I have a new book out. It's called Between You and Me, and it's about being a copy editor at The New Yorker and about my background and strange people I've worked with. I'm going to read to you from the opening of Chapter 2, which is titled That Witch. I always forget that in the popular imagination, the copy editor is a bit of a witch. And it surprises me when someone is afraid of me. Not long ago, a young editorial assistant getting her first tour of the New Yorker offices paused at my door to be introduced. And when she heard I was a copy editor, she jumped back as if I might poke her with a red-hot hyphen or force-feed her a pound of commas. Relax, I wanted to say. We copy editors sometimes get a reputation for wanting to redirect the flow, change the course of the missile, have our way with a piece of prose. But good writers have a reason for doing things the way they do them. And if you tinker with their work, neutralize a slightly eccentric usage, or zap a comma, or sharpen the emphasis of something that the writer was deliberately keeping obscure, you are not helping. In my experience, the really great writers enjoy the editorial process. They are not defensive. The whole point of having things read before publication is to test their effect on a general reader. You want to make sure when you go out there that the tag on the back of your collar isn't poking up. Unless, of course, you are deliberately wearing your clothes inside out. When the opening chapters of Philip Roth's I Married a Communist ran in The New Yorker, I got to okay it. It was immaculate. Copy editors at Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux had already been over it. And once a piece is in that form, authors, agents, and editors are reluctant to change a ligature. I went over it, giving it all I had. Sometimes copy departments at publishing houses miss something, just as we sometimes miss something. I noticed a small inconsistency in a passage that was quoted from a children's history book. It was a long quotation set off in small type, and it was repeated at the end with some slight variation. I marked it and gave my proof to the fiction editor, Bill Buford. Later, Bill's assistant came bounding up the stairs and delivered to me a color Xerox of the first page of my proof, on which Buford had written in blue. Of Mary Norris, Roth said, Who is this woman? And will she come live with me? 
Up to that point, I'd read only Roth's story collection, Goodbye Columbus, and his novel, Portnoy's Complaint. Now I bought the audiobook of I Married a Communist and listened to it on a drive back from Ohio. I almost went off the road during an ecstatic passage where the stars were furnaces. Furnace of Ira, Furnace of Eve. It seemed so warm and passionate. The book was funny, too. The hero is forced to schlep his girlfriend's daughter's harp all over town. I had a harpist in the family, so I knew there is nothing heavenly about a working harp. I subsequently had a year of Roth, his memoirs, and all the Zuckerman books. I was so sorry when I ran out of Roth to read. I did speak with Roth on the phone once, closing a piece about Saul Bellow, and saw him at a New Yorker holiday party. I have been smitten ever since his proposition on the page proof. I suppose all he wanted was a housekeeper, someone to keep track of the details. But if he should ever read this, I just want to say, I'm still available. Mary Norris. She is the longtime copy editor for The New Yorker magazine. Her first book, Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen, comes out this week. And thankfully, Rico, since we're on radio, punctuation mistakes aren't important? Yeah, no one even notices. Okay, folks, coming up, movie star, Oscar, Isaac, when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. We should let you know this is an encore broadcast of an episode that first aired in April. It's well worth a second listen, though. Indeed. Later, Flaming Lips frontman Wayne Coyne DJs your dinner party. We learn about a crunchy collision of Northern California and Dutch cuisine. And the nanny herself, Fran Drescher, answers your etiquette questions. I'm not a shrinking violet. I do give my opinions to people. Not surprisingly. But first... It's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's actor Oscar Isaac. We spoke to him a couple years back about portraying the title character in the Coen Brothers film Inside Lewin Davis. That performance earned him a Golden Globe nomination. He also appeared in Nicholas Winding Refn's Moody Noir Drive. Earlier this year, he earned raves for a starring role in the film A Most Violent Year. And, oh yeah, he's also in the cast of the forthcoming Star Wars movie. Wait, they're still making those? Yeah, I read something about it online. (laughs) But his latest project is the smart sci-fi thriller Ex Machina. It comes out this week on DVD. In it, he plays Nathan, a moody billionaire tech genius who invites a coder named Caleb to meet his new invention, a beautiful robot woman. He wants Caleb to question her and judge if she is truly artificially intelligent and self-aware. When I met Oscar, I asked if he'd based his performance on any real-life characters. I got inspired, actually, by Bobby Fischer, was was one person that I found that I thought, well, this is a guy who clearly had a brilliant mind, was street smart, uh, self-taught, had deep misanthropic feelings, was an angry guy. This would be the chess champion, of course, Bobby Fischer. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, and he actually had an an Olympic trainer, which was amazing, while he was preparing for his chess battles. Which is interesting, because your character is very physical for an intellectual techie guy. Exactly. He's, you know, he's almost gratuitously working out in the film, kind of just showing that this 
opponent of Caleb, Donald Gleason's character, uh, is not only intellectually superior, but physically superior as well. So yeah, him and then and then Kubrick was another guy that I thought of. Both of these guys happen to be from the Bronx as well. The director Stanley Kubrick, you based your look a little bit on him. And and uh, and speech pattern. I, I listened to the way he would talk. You know, he sp- spoke, and there's a few recordings when he was younger. And again, someone else that that was great at chess was quite mysterious and a genius. I mean, had a brilliant mind for details, and you could see was thinking so many moves ahead. You know, so so those glasses and the way that Kubrick would kind of look over his glasses at people with those big owl eyes and that bald head and the beard. Uh, that was definitely a, a visual inspiration for me as well. All really interesting choices because when I think of you know billionaire tech geniuses, I think of Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, sure, that makes sense. But Nathan is a damaged, darker, misanthropic individual. I think he knows he's creating something that could signify the end for us. I think he anticipates that at some point, one of these things is going to escape. (laughs) And that will be the proof that he's created something hyper-intelligent. Not only self-aware, but super self-aware. One day the AIs are gonna look back on us the same way we look at fossil skeletons in the plains of Africa. An upright ape, living in dust with crude language and tools, all set for extinction. I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. There you go again, Mr. Quotable. There you go again. It's not my quote. It's what Oppenheimer said after he made the The atomic atomic bomb. bomb. Yeah, I know what it is, dude. Well, this brings up something I wanted to address, actually. The sci-fi movie Chappie came out a few weeks back. So you've got these two movies coming out at the same time about artificial intelligence. One of them, in Chappie, the, you know, artificial intelligence is our savior. In this one, it might be at the end of us. Which side do you fall on? Uh, I'm not the most optimistic amount about uh, what humans create and their control over those creations. I think... I have a slightly more pessimistic view of where we're headed as far as the destruction of mankind. <laughs> All right, well, then you ended up in the right film. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But I think that that's uh, one of the lesser questions of the film. I think ultimately, for me, what was most exciting about the movie is the question that the construction of something that's self-aware forces you to ask about the nature of human consciousness. You know, like What is it, maybe? Exactly. Not, not only what is it, but is it even special? Is it, a, is it just a phenomenon of uh, accumulating stimulus? And the idea of experience and how one can never know if uh, your experience is completely alien to mine. We can try to describe it to each other, but we just have no idea if we uh, feel the same way about existence. Yeah, that philosophical idea that there is a a true objective reality, but all we can see of it are shadows of it playing out on the walls of our little individual caves. Exactly, yeah, which is, there's even a, an allusion to that in, in one of the final shots of the film with these uh, shadows walking on the floor. I didn't even make that connection. That is genius. Oh, man, how are we going to get this across to a radio audience? <laughs> there, are, there is an image of shadows on the floor. I did not think of that kind of philosophical concept. And, and, but it's true. There is only subjective. I mean, it's, it's only what we are able to process inside our, our little machines in here. Should I roll another joint? Should I? <laughs> um, turning from trippy to maybe more political matters, uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, roles for minorities in Hollywood. 
you are of Cuban and Guatemalan background, but I've noticed about half your roles, including this one and some of the others you're maybe best known for, your background really isn't even a factor. Is this maybe an indication that things are getting better, that Hollywood is becoming like more colorblind? Or Probably not. Uh, <laughs> Come on. I'm looking for hope here. <laughs> you're asking the wrong dude. No, I mean, look, yes, there, there, there are... I, it's tough because I have been very fortunate in, in, in those regards. I've had a lot of opportunity to play vastly different people, but it hasn't just been luck. I've been very active in making sure that, you know, for instance, when I get a, a script, if the script, you know, describes the character as Latin or whatever ethnicity it might be, my very first thing is to take that away and to see what's there. Because often what happens is you get characters that are quite bland, that the only interesting thing about them is that they're exotic and they're from some sort of weird place, you know, and that they that they speak funny or that they have funny cultural things and maybe uh, passionate or something, you know, <laughs> or bad-tempered or something, you know. And so, they like food. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They like food and family. Yeah. So, so that's one of the first things I'll do, just to make sure that the, it's not just something that's being stamped on it to make it more interesting or to, you know, to fill some quota or something. And, and in, in the past... For instance, Drive was one that I had gotten where I passed on that one because I just felt that the character was a cliche and, you know, he was just written as this gangster, this thug that was horrible to his family, lived a life of crime, and then you just wanted him to die so the white people could get together, you know. And uh, But you could argue the whole point of that movie is to take these intense kind of noirish stereotypes, these masculine stereotypes, and push them all the way to the limit. You know, the evil gangster, the stone-faced hero. Yeah, but as an actor, you don't want to play a stereotype, even if, it, if, even if the film wants to explore that. So what, uh, what Nick Reffin said to me, he's like, all right, well, if it could be anything, what would it be? And so we sat for about four hours, and we decided to make him uh, a tragic character, maybe someone who made a couple bad decisions, but who actually loved his family and was trying to do the right thing, but gets caught up in violence and... And it actually makes it more dramatically interesting. There's more conflict there. So, you know, it's a process of also being able to say no, even when the project seems great, because it's perpetuating something. You know, we had J.C. Shandor on the show, who directed you in A Most Violent Year. And he said that he wanted to tell an immigrant story that wasn't the standard immigrant story. I imagine that was the appeal of that character. A absolutely, yeah. That character, in fact, he was so idiosyncratic and strange in how much he wanted to erase his past, you know, even you know, forcing his workers to speak English. And, and I wouldn't say that was necessarily a positive trait, but it speaks to this kind of capitalist idea in this country where, you know, the idea was you come to this country, you shed your ethnic robes and put on a power suit and go make some money, damn it. And so, yeah, I, I kind of liked this character who also happened to be from Latin America and, and that informs who he is but it's not the most interesting part of them. I'm going to ask you our two standard questions we ask everyone on the show. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Uh, what happens in the new Star Wars movie? <laughs> Actually, here's, I know you can't tell us that, but if you had to sum up the entire plot in one word, what would it be? Yeah, don't ask me that at the party, okay? Just <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Not even that? I thought you could give me okay. just a cryptic word okay, that sure. then people could debate endlessly online. Don't. <laughs> All right. And our second question is sort of the flip of that, which is tell us something we don't know. You know, like the plot of the new Star Wars. <laughs> uh, tell you something. My sister used to dress me up as a girl and call me Raisin. Yeah. <laughs> Did you enjoy that? I mean, was it fun? I think it started my theatrical career. <laughs> is that true? Probably. Actually, this reminds me of uh, something that you said in an interview 
I don't know if what you just told me is an example of this, but you said that a major part of acting is humiliation. I was having a bad day that day, wasn't I? Uh, no, actually, there there is a little bit of that. There is. You, you, it's. I think that's what makes it an extreme sport. <laughs> you know, the potential for physical damage, for physical uh, pain, is very low. But the 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 <laughs> the potential for psychic. <laughs> pain you know to the ego is mortal so it's like yeah it's like bullfighting you know yeah that's why actors do all sorts of weird stuff before they have to act or demand strange things or have to get themselves into strange places because it's like gearing up for a bullfight you know you go out there and you are completely exposed to the dangers of complete humiliation and when you're able to get past that and to start acting truthfully regardless of how silly you look it also is incredibly exhilarating Oscar Isaac, he stars in the new film Ex Machina. And Brendan, this was genius, part of the movie's marketing campaign a few weeks back Mm -hmm. was they created a fake profile on the dating app Tinder as though the robot woman in the film had made the profile herself. Very clever. Did they tell people it was a fake profile? They did not. And it was set up so that if you texted her, she would, quote, respond with pre-programmed questions. And people were actually having conversations with this spam bot and falling for her. Wow. That's a true story. So this movie's basically a documentary. (laughs) That is what I'm saying. (laughs) All right. Frighteningly. Well, people, if you write to us, we promise any responses will come from a real human being. Mm. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. And now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Rico, when I say California cuisine, what do you think of? In-N-Out Burger. All right. Boom. Yes. It's a good state for fast food. It is. But California cuisine usually calls to mind the chef Alice Waters All right. with her restaurant Chez Panisse and its emphasis on simple recipes, local ingredients. Yeah. Although a, a cheeseburger is pretty simple. That, that's true. Well, you'll be happy to know that at Barbalinas, a new California-focused restaurant in Brooklyn, there is a burger on the menu. Yeah. And what's more, its bun is prepared in a style unique to the Bay Area called Dutch Crunch. Which I've lived in California for 20 years and never heard of. Yeah, and actually the menu is full of Golden State-specific preparations and ingredients. When I met with the owners and chefs Nate Smith and his wife Sophie Kamen, I asked them how their concept of California cuisine differs from Waters. Alice Waters is French. So her roots, even though she's using California ingredients, are French and Mediterranean. And although we want some French influence, we were looking past that. We're focused on uh, the Mexican cultures as well as the Asian cultures that um, settled in the Bay Area. So what's special about California is that you have, you have the coast, but you also have the land and the mountains. And you have um, the ranches that um, were part of you know, California's history. So you, f- you get a strong presence of meat as well as the seafood. And we're excited to sort of show both of that. It's almost, for lack of a better word, like the surf and turf kind of a, <laughs> kind of a thing, this sort of ranchero California style. So when you're talking about the land, you uh, you have a cut of meat here that I never seen in New York actually, but used to see in California all the time, which is the tri-tip. Can you describe what that is? And the tri-tip is a cut. It's a triangular cut from the bottom round. It's really common in Central California, and it's um, traditionally grilled in the Santa Maria style, which, in my experience, it's been 
garlic powder, like a little soy sauce, um, some white wine, rosemary. And then what kind of seafood is emblematic of coastal California? Well, sardines. Um, Monterey Bay has got fantastic sardines. Um, there's Dungeness crab, which uh, we would, no we're, we're trying to hands, figure out. No one can get their hands on it. But sardines, uni um, is something that you see a lot, and as well as um, just like nice uh, roasted fish. So lots of California food, vegetables, fish, meat, but you've been getting some attention for a dish I'd never heard of, not even a dish, it's a, an item, a food item, Dutch crunch. What is Dutch crunch? So Dutch crunch is just a sandwich bread that we grew up eating, and it was not a specialty bread as far as I understood it to be, because it was at every little deli that you could go. Sandwich shops, essentially. They're not delis, they're sandwich shops. As I understand, it was an option just like sourdough, wheat, or Dutch crunch. It's like sliced, or it's like, you know, it's like usually on a roll. It's usually like something that's more like oblong, sort of like the French sourdough roll with Dutch crunch on it. Its greatest virtue is that it has a crunch, right? So it changes the mouthfeel of whatever. Yeah, I mean, I would compare it to putting, uh, you know, chips on your sandwich. Without all the salt, though. Without all the salt, yeah, exactly. No, it's got like a, it's got a nice uh, crunch when you when you bite down on it, and and because of the Dutch crunch over the top of the bun, it will with our in our bun, it tends to uh, avoid the bread from becoming too bready. You know, it kind of almost like kind of gives it a little weight. What makes Dutch crunch different? How do you get the crunch on the top of the bun? You basically make a slurry. Um, and when I was researching it, it was actually really challenging to figure out because it's done mostly with big commercial bakeries. You know, when you go online, it's three ingredients. And I kept doing it. And I'm like, this is wrong. This is wrong. This isn't how it's supposed to be. And I f- knew it had to be somewhat simple because I knew that big commercial bakeries did it. So I, I essentially had to start cold calling delis in San Francisco and then finding where they got their bread and then talking to them about what are the nuances. So is this something they're putting on top of pre-existing bread or is it something that just is from the ground up designed to be Dutch crunch bread? It does matter the base of the bread and it's usually a white bread. We use a potato bread base and you make a slurry that has flour, rice flour, yeast, um, oil, the oil is really important, and you have to play around with the proportion essentially to get it the way you want it. At what stage does the crunch enter the game? So you put the Dutch crunch on the bread before it goes into the oven, so that when the thing about it is that it's a non-gluten slurry. So when the bread opens up, it doesn't stretch with it; it cracks and then dries out, and that's yeah. where you get that. And that's why it looks like like a topographical map of California, actually. <laughs> right, yeah. It's also called tiger bread. Because, because it kind of has, like, a coloring markings. Like yeah, that. and I think it's just, like, the patterns, and, like, it kind of has that wild animal, <laughs> sort of <laughs> desert animal, yeah. Do you know how the heck that ended up in San Francisco, if it's called the Dutch Crunch? Well, it's, it's from the Netherlands originally, so that's why they call it the Dutch Crunch. But, but no one's actually really sure... You know, it seems to have appeared in the 70s, and it's in Europe. You can find it yeah. readily, again, in, in grocery stores. All right, so I'm, I'm looking at this Dutch Crunch, which this looks does look more like a giraffe than a tiger, I'll say today. Yeah, Correct. It's weird. They, they all say that when you're reading all the blogs and everybody's like, it doesn't look like a tiger. But it, it looks crunchy, and I'm not, I'm not having a burger because we're recording this in the morning, and so I'm going I'm to taste it. Maybe we should all taste a little bit together. A little California communion here. <laughs> the breaking of the Dutch crunch, yeah. You can hear the crunch in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're right. It is less doughy than one would expect from a burger bun. And I, and I guess that actually like, helps the integrity of the bun 
as the burger and the cheese is kind of up. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I always struggle with when eating a burger is this sort of like unnecessary excess of bread. So um, we're excited that they're the size and shape they are. It worked. Yeah, it worked. And, and then the burger stays kind of classic. You know, we had talked about, do we put avocado on the burger? Do we do all these things? And it just sort of seemed like we wanted like a classic burger with just a little twist. You are in New York after all. You are in New York. Yeah, and happy to be here. Enrico, Barbalinas is named after this little bohemian town north of San Francisco okay. where the locals really don't welcome outsiders. Hmm. A bunch of times over the years, they've even torn down road signs that show people where the town is. <laughs> so they're going to be psyched to hear there's this hot new restaurant named after exactly. them. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Although I doubt they'll bother leaving their hippie Shangri-La, you know, to uh, no. attack their enemies here. I think Brooklyn's safe. Folks, coming up. Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips and Fran Drescher laughs in the face of your etiquette questions. <laughs> Just like that when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, Wayne Coyne from the band The Flaming Lips suggests a few songs to play at a David Lynch-style dinner party which would probably involve murder. So I'm actually mm. not sure why we would need a whole playlist. Yeah, you really only <laughs> need one song. Yeah. He's giving us options, I guess. Well, there you go. Very polite of him. Speaking of, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. That's right. Each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around is Fran Drescher. She is maybe best known for playing the title role in the CBS sitcom The Nanny, which ran for six seasons and earned her two Emmy nominations. But she's also had memorable roles in movies, including This is Spinal Tap. She's written best-selling books for adults and kids. And last year, she made her Broadway debut as the wicked stepmother Madame in the pretty dang magical musical Cinderella. She is reprising the role through April 26th at the Amundsen Theater in Los Angeles. She joins us in the studio with her dog, Samson. Yes. And Fran, it is great to have you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Frank, can you make Samson introduce himself to us? Samson, you want to say something? <laughs> Apparently not. He's Samson. finally quieting down. I don't want to get him stirred up. Okay, all right, good. let's He's... not get him all stirred up. <laughs> He's very polite, Samson. <laughs> yeah, no, because I'm I'm just weaning him off of the Prozac, and <laughs> ah. I'm hoping that I can teach him not to go like nuts every time someone comes to the door. So you yeah. decided to take him off the Prozac right before bringing him to our studios. Thank exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah, As idea. the test, ultimately. I knew I was doing this show, and I said, well, that'll be the test. <laughs> So, Fran, this Cinderella you're starring in is just one of the happiest, uncynical things ever. Yes. It is full of relatable, upbeat characters trying to make the world a better place. And here you are playing the meanest person <laughs> in the world. Yeah, I gave Wicked Stepmother, you know, the reputation, my character. So how much of a challenge was that for you? Because you're known to be a pretty, you know... You're a selfless advocate for gay rights and women's health. Affable gal. Yeah. How, how, so. Well, you know, I if when I took over the role on Broadway, I really wanted to infuse glamour and humor to the character. They designed new costumes for me and headpieces and wigs. I found oh. areas to add a little comedy. So, But it sounds like you were uncomfortable with the character being too mean. You know, the thing is, I didn't originate this role on Broadway. They kind of brought me in after a year to help fortify ticket sales. And so I think that... <laughs> if, wow, if you do say so yourself. Uh, well, it, you know, it worked. Yeah. Uh, 
You're but, like Harvey Keitel in Pulp Fiction. You're like, we need glamour and we need humor. <laughs> That's how we're going to sell seats. I often uh, compare you and Harvey. But so I said, if we're going to try and entice my fans or the nanny fans more specifically, we got to give them what they used to seeing me as. I'm yeah. not. You're you know, not the, true evil. No. That's and I am thing. glamorous and I am funny. So let's just kind of round out the rough edges a little bit. Well, Libby, <laughs> speaking of glamorous musicals, well, maybe not so glamorous, but certainly great. I have to tell you a story. The other night, I, for some reason, decided to watch Saturday Night Fever on Netflix. Yeah, I heard that was on. And my girlfriend suddenly squeals, oh, my God, it's Fran Drescher. And there you are, disco dancing in a character role with John Travolta. I know, you didn't know I was in that movie. That was my first job. I was a teenager. So I was already a fan. I was very excited to be working with him. And, you know, he was a little sad because the gal that he was with at the time had been diagnosed with cancer or she had... Mm. I don't really remember. And you've got to dance with joy. Yeah, he was sad. And I Mm. said, just do it. Just do it and then it'll be done. So you're arguably the reason Saturday Night Fever succeeded. Yeah, you're like said, Forrest Gump. Oh, listen, I can, I'll tell you every story and how I spun it around me. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, can you tell me about, uh, how about now Gone with the Wind? The assassination of McKinley. How did you pull those two I things off? I was there. Wow. I was the one that shouted duck. <laughs> and America remained great. Uh, there we go. Thank you, Fran Drescher. Well, well, Fran Drescher, you clearly have wisdom, and are you ready to share that wisdom with our audience with their etiquette questions. Ah. All right, here we go. This first one comes from Diana from Brooklyn. And Diana asks, how do you tell your waiter waitress you did not like the taste of the food you ordered? You know, they're not my partner in life. They're not my best friend. So, you know, rather than me sit there, wait for them to do the right thing and then walk out in a huff because they didn't, Mm. I'd rather just tell them. And just today, I was making that point (laughs) to someone. I wasn't in a restaurant, but I was saying how sometimes you just got to say, I'm sorry, I, you know, I can't eat this. I don't, you know, it's not what I expected. And please take it away. Just be straightforward is what you're saying. And do not charge me for it and, either. And do not charge yeah, me Yeah, don't it. leave any stone unturned. <laughs> but this is the question. Is that fair? I mean, they made the dish the way that they make it. It doesn't sound like the service was bad. This is just a matter of taste. Yes, I think that in, in this particular case, this is not something you should do devil may care. Yeah, this is something bold. that you have to really weigh and measure. Mm-hmm. But if it's something that you absolutely cannot, you know, sometimes they'll list the ingredients, but they'll leave out like raw onion. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, what? I yeah. can't eat raw onion, thank you. Yeah. If push comes to shove, you can always say it's tough or something. Yeah, right. If it's overdone. If you feel like you don't want to own that, you just don't like it. And you thought you would, and you don't. Yes. And maybe you can tip a little extra if they're nice I'm enough. a big tipper regardless. Okay. Um. All right. Well, I can't wait to find out what our tip is after this interview. Yay. All right. Here's something from Eva in Indianapolis. And Eva writes... What is the best way to respond when someone comments on your laugh? Hmm. 
I wonder why they asked you this. Uh, well, I, you know, most people say, would you do your life for me? And I call that yes. my seal act. <laughs> um, you what know, a weird life. That's it, crazy. It, I, I decided on my tombstone it should just say her laugh made us laugh, period. <laughs> there you go. But they want me to laugh on command. You yeah. know, I had to go to therapy to learn how to, uh, you know, not be so willing to do everything anybody requested of me. <laughs> Uh, and put myself in the equation. Do you send Samson to school so he does do things people tell him to do? OMG, you don't know how many, <laughs> how many uh, dog trainers have come to the house. <laughs> trainers for the stars, trainers in New York. And the vet actually said, you got a lemon. <laughs> Can you imagine a vet telling the owner, Take I'm the mother, you got a lemon. The vet needs a trainer. So there you go. There you go, Ava. If um, someone comments in your laugh, laugh for them. But then go yes. do something for yourself. I yeah, take it as a compliment. I All right. I do. Oh, I do. I do. Here's something from Susanna via Facebook. Susanna writes, if you are currently touring in a Broadway musical... She just throws that out there mm -hmm. as a hypothetical. A lot of our listeners are. Yeah. And one of your castmates keeps using hideous red eyebrow pencil <laughs> instead of brown. Should you say something to him or just let it go? <laughs> now, this Susanna actually knows somebody in the cast because this actually oh. happened to a wonderful actor, Branch Woodman. I looked at him one night and he had like reddish eyebrow pencil on his eyes. I didn't say anything. Okay. Then the next night he had brown on. Now, I am a cosmetician. Oh, I, yeah. I have mm. been putting on makeup on myself for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And so I had to say something. I said, okay, now... What is the eyebrow pencil you're wearing tonight? And how come it's different from what you wore yesterday? And he said, is it different? I'm colorblind. <laughs> I said, whatever you wore tonight, wow. put a little piece of tape around that <laughs> pencil. Only use the brown one. It's perfect. All right. <laughs> so, so there's the answer. Tell them straight up. Yes. I'm not a shrinking violet. I do give my opinions to people, but I will never talk about them behind their back ever. Yeah, sure. But as far as I'm discreet, it took us 30 seconds to learn that Samson is on Prozac. Okay? So <laughs> you might want to extend that courtesy to your pets. Well, I'm an, I'm an open <laughs> book with myself. Okay. But I apologize to Samson if I've actually come. <laughs> compromise his privacy. You better because he yeah. could blow at any time. I know. Apparently. Nobody right. needs, I don't need to advertise <laughs> that right. he's on prescriptive drugs. You have Cujo underneath you right now, so let's hope I it all works out. I do call him Cujo. Part of his problem is that he was biting. <laughs> he... Oh my God. Fran Drescher. <laughs> thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Let's get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. It's been delightful. Fran Drescher. She plays the wicked stepmother, Madame, in the musical Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. It's on stage through April 26th at the Amundsen Theater in Los Angeles. And we've got a photo of Fran with Samson the Pomeranian. He's vicious. He is viciously adorable at our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we've met our guest of honor, polished up our etiquette skills. Let's close this party with some music. And here with the playlist is musician and artist Wayne Coyne, frontman of the band The Flaming Lips. 
Their far-out yet accessible psych rock has earned them three Grammys. They recently joined up with Karen O, Donovan, and other rock stars for a concert celebrating the music of filmmaker David Lynch and benefiting the David Lynch Foundation. That's right. So here's Wayne with a playlist that's as cool and freaky as Lynch's surreal classics like Blue Velvet or Twin Peaks. Maybe more so. Hello, everybody. This is Wayne Coyne. I'm in the band The Flaming Lips. And I'm here to do this David Lynch-style soundtrack to what could maybe be the music that played at a David Lynch dinner party. The first song, who all would be there? I don't know. But it would be... David would be there and I would be there and this music would begin. Big John. Big John. It's by well, at one time very famous country singer by the name of Jimmy Dean. Song called Big Bad John. Every morning at the mine you could see him arrive. He stood six foot six and weighed two forty-five, kind of broad at the shoulder and narrow at the hip. And everybody knew you didn't give no lip to Big John. It's literally about this giant mine worker who comes to the rescue of these other miners when the mine's collapsing. But there's a verse in the song that implies if he got slightly drunk or someone picked a fight with him, he could kill a guy with one punch. You know, there's this undercurrent of violence. Somebody said he came from New Orleans where he got in a fight over a Cajun queen and a crashing blow from a huge right hand sent a Louisiana fella to the promised land, Big John. There's definitely an area of David Lynch that is this vibe, this type of leftover man's world, 50s Americana. You know, he seems like he's completely skipped anything that had to do with hippies and you know long hair and stuff like that i don't know him but knowing what i know about him it's like you you could say david what do you think of the beatles and he'd say well i think they're great little insects you know i stuck them on a painting the other day big bad john my second song I'm not sure if it's actually considered a song, but it's a piece of music that I've loved for a really long time. It's by an experimental composer by the name of Gavin Bryars. It's called Jesus' Blood Never Failed Me Yet. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. Never failed me yet. Jesus' blood Never found me yet. I think it was in like 1975. It has a kind of distorted loop of like a guy on the street, Scottish or Irish or something, and he's singing that little refrain, Jesus' blood never failed me yet. The hymnal. And I think the distortion on the recording and stuff helps it seem like it's being beamed in from heaven out there. Briars builds this orchestration and chord structures and melodies around this loop. But it really just repeats this loop over and over and over. I think it's for about 35, 40 minutes, you know. And it's pretty compelling. There's stories of Briars. While he was building the loop, it was playing in a section of the art school that he was working in. And people that were painting next door came to him sobbing and said, you got to turn that off. It's affecting us too much. 
And why it, I thought it being with David, it's like some of the imagery in The Elephant Man. It, it implies this world that feels like it's black and white. And it's, you know, when rooms aren't lit well, there's, there's mystery in the corners. You don't really know what was going on. And, you know, it's building this movie kind of in your mind. The third song that I've picked is, is by a group called Suicide. The track is called Frankie Teardrop. Frankie Teardrop. The story is David Lynchian. 20-year-old Frankie. They're singing about a guy, Frankie, working in a factory environment, and the, and the music itself is kind of a punishing factory machine sound. He's working from 7 to 5. He's got like a brand new baby, Frankie Teardrop. He has a brand new baby. This already sounds bad. He's just trying to survive. He can't pay the bills, and he's having some psychological breakdown. <laughs> he shoots the baby. I mean, it's, it's just a frightening, just unbelievable that someone is really doing a song like that. And I think that's why it reminds me so much of the things that David Lynch would do. It just, you can't believe someone is really doing that. It's beyond horror movie. You know, horror movies, for the most part, aren't very horrible because they're kind of just so goofy, you know. But there's something about this type of madness, this human madness, that is really, really what's horrible. So this last segment of music you're going to hear is the music that we played at the um, tribute to um, the music of David Lynch. It is the music that plays at the very end of the Elephant Man movie. It's a really emotional, powerful piece of music. At the end of the movie here, John Merrick, we get a sense he's going to pass away in his sleep. And as he lays there, he sees these great David Lynchian dream sequences, you know, uh, of his mother talking to him, speaking about love never dies. You know, you never die. Never. Never. Nothing will die. I mean, that's why I love David Lynch so much. It's like he always has heart. It's never a joke to be a joke. There's never violence to get attention. It's all from the heart. No one, you couldn't do that and, and not mean it, you know. Nothing will die. Wayne Coyne, his band The Flaming Lips, performed at a tribute to the music of David Lynch. You just heard his Lynchian dinner party soundtrack. Four words that have probably never been uttered before. That's right. And uh, by the way, the last tune was Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings, which we learned at the beginning of this episode calms cats during mm-hmm. surgery. Why do I feel like David Lynch would find that fact particularly delightful? I don't know, but I agree. And folks, that concludes this encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download. Tune in next week for an all-new show. Till then, please note, Jackson Musker is our producer, Nina Patak is our associate producer, and Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Ravi Carmen engineered. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. We'd also like to say hello to our new listeners on KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, and beyond. Hello. We're so glad you could join the party. 
And remember, no matter where you are on Earth, you can download our podcast on iTunes for $0. And you'll find us all week long on Twitter or Instagram, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. See you there, and bon appétit.